0: Section sixteen of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulet. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume two, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Isabella of France chapter two part two queen isabella remained at valenciennes during eight days with the good count and his countess joanna of valois then the queen made every preparation for her departure and john of hainault wrote very affectionate letters to certain knight companions in whom he put great confidence from brabant and bohemia beseeching them, by all the friendship there was between them, to arm in the cause of the distressed Queen of England. All the expedition gathered at Dort. Then the Queen of England took leave of the Count of Hainault and his Countess, thanking them much for the honorable entertainment they had shown her, and she kissed them at her departure. Sir John, with great difficulty, obtained his lord and brother's permission to accompany Isabella when he took leave of him he said my dear lord and brother i am young and believe that god has inspired me with a desire of this enterprise for my advancement i also believe for certain that this lady and her son have been driven from their kingdom wrongfully if it is for the glory of god to comfort the afflicted how much more is it to help and succour one who is daughter of a king descended from royal lineage and to whose blood we ourselves are related i will renounce everything here and go and take up the cross in heathendom beyond seas if this good lady leaves us without comfort and aid but if you grant me a willing leave i shall do well and accomplish my purpose when the good earl heard his brother and perceived the great desire he had for this expedition he said dear brother god forbid there should be any hindrance to your wish therefore I give you leave in the name of God. He then kissed him and squeezed his hand in sign of great affection. The queen, her son and sweet, set off, accompanied by Sir John, and went that night to Mons, where they slept. They embarked at Dort, according to Foisart, whose account of their voyage and landing on the terra incognita, between Orford and Harwich, is so marvelous that we have, in preference, translated the authentic and circumstantial details of the Chronicle of Flanders. The fleet was tossed with a great tempest, but made the port about noon, when the queen, being got safely on shore, her knights and attendants made her a house with four carpets, open in the front, where they kindled her a great fire of the pieces of wreck, some of their ships having been beaten to pieces in the tempest meantime the flemish sailors got on shore before midnight all the horses and arms and then the ships that had survived the storm sailed the wind being favorable to the opposite coast but the queen finding herself ill at ease on the stormy sea-beach that night marched at daybreak with banners displayed towards the next country town where she found all the houses amply and well furnished with provisions but all the people fled The advance guard, meantime, spread themselves over the country, and seized all the cattle and food they could get, and the owners followed them, crying bitterly, into the presence of the queen, who asked them, what was the fair value of the goods, and when they named the price, she paid them all liberally in ready money. The people were so pleased with this conduct, that they supplied her well with provisions. Queen Isabella arrived at Harwich, on the 25th of September, 1326, on the domain of Thomas of Brotherton, the king's brother, who was the first that greeted her on her landing. Then she was met and welcomed by her uncle, Henry of Lancaster, and many other barons and knights, and almost all the bishops, notwithstanding the king's proclamation, commanding all men to avoid the queen's armament at its first landing. Her force consisted of 2,757 soldiers, well-appointed, commanded by Lord John of Hainault, brother of her ally, the Sovereign of Hainault. Roger Mortimer commanded her English partisans. The historian of Harwich declares that it was wonderful how the common people flocked to her. Every generous feeling in the English character had been worked upon by her emissaries, who had disseminated inflammatory tales of the persecutions she had endured from the king, her husband, and his barbarous ministers. It was asserted that she had been driven into a foreign land by plots against her life, and that she was the most oppressed of queens, the most injured of wives. So blinding was the excitement which, at this crisis, pervaded all classes of the people, that the glaring falsehood of her statements, as to the cause of her quitting England, was forgotten. The improprieties of her conduct, which had excited the disgust of her own countrymen, and caused the king, her brother, to expel her with contempt from his dominions, were regarded as the base calumnies of the dispensers the facts that she came attended by her paramour an outlawed traitor and at the head of a band of foreign mercenaries to raise the standard of revolt against her husband and sovereign having abused her maternal influence over the mind of the youthful heir of england to draw him into a parricidal rebellion excited no feelings of moral or religious reprobation in the nation every plantagenet in england espoused her cause But it is to be observed, that the king's younger brothers by the half-blood, Thomas of Brotherton, and the Earl of Kent, were Isabella's first cousins, being the sons of her aunt Marguerite of France, and that Henry of Lancaster was her uncle. The connection of these princes with the blood royal of France, had ever led them to make common cause with Queen Isabella. By them and by their party, she was always treated as if she were a person of more importance than the king, her husband. When the alarming intelligence of the landing of the queen's armament reached the king, he was paralyzed, and, instead of taking measures for defense, he sat down to write pathetic letters to the Pope and the King of France, entreating their succor or interference. He then issued a proclamation, proscribing the persons of all those who had taken arms against him, with the exception of Queen Isabella, the prince, her son, and his brother, the Earl of Kent. It is dated September 28th, 1326. In it, he offers a thousand pounds for the head of the arch Roger Mortimer. The Queen, who had traversed England with great celerity, at the head of an increasing army, immediately published a reward of double that sum for the head of the younger dispenser in her manifesto from wallingford wherein she set forth that her motives in coming are to deliver the kingdom from the misleaders of the king the next attack on the king was from the pulpit at oxford where adam orleton bishop of hereford having called the university together in the presence of the queen the prince of wales roger mortimer and their followers preached a sermon from the following text, My head, my head acheth, 2 Kings 4, verse 19, in which, after explaining the queen's motive for appearing in arms, he, with unpriestly ferocity, concluded with this observation, When the head of a kingdom becometh sick and diseased, it must of necessity be taken off, without useless attempts to administer any other remedy. The delivery of this murderous doctrine, in the presence of the wife and son of the devoted sovereign, ought to have filled every bosom with horror and indignation, but such is the blindness of party rage, that its only effect was to increase the madness of the people against their unhappy king. That misjudging prince, after committing the custody of the tower, and the care of his second son, John of Eltham, to the young lady dispenser, his niece, and the guardianship of the city of London, to the faithful Stapleton, bishop of Exeter, left the metropolis, attended by the two dispensers, the earls of Arundel and Hereford, his chancellor Baldock, bishop of Norwich, and a few others of his adherents, and fled to Bristol, with the intent of taking refuge in Ireland. The departure of the king was the signal for a general rising of the Londoners, in which the bishop of Exeter immediately fell a sacrifice to the fury of the partisans of the queen and Mortimer. The head of this honest prelate was cut off, and presented to the queen at Gloucester, as an acceptable offering. Six weeks afterwards, says Tyne, the queen, forgetting all discourtesies, did, like a woman desirous to show that his death happened without her liking, and also that she reverenced his calling, commanded his corpse to be removed from the place of its first dishonorable interment under a heap of rubbish, and caused it to be buried in his own cathedral. The Lady Dispenser, intimidated by this murder, surrendered the tower to the mob, who proclaimed Prince John the custos of the city, and in the Queen's name, liberated the prisoners in all the jails. The Queen and all her company, says Foissart, the lords of Hainault and their suite, took the shortest road for Bristol, and in every town through which they passed, were entertained with every mark of distinction. Their forces augmented daily until they arrived at Bristol, which they besieged. The king and the younger Hugh Dispenser shut themselves up in the castle. Old Sir Hugh and the Earl of Arundel remained in the town, but these the citizens delivered up soon after to the queen, who entered Bristol, accompanied by Sir John Hainault with all her barons, knights, and squires. Sir Hugh Dispenser, the elder, and the Earl of Arundel, were delivered to the queen, that she might do what she pleased with them. The children of the queen were also brought to her, John of Eltham, and her two daughters. As she had not seen them for a long time, this gave her great joy as well as all her party. The king and the younger Dispenser, shut up in the castle, were much grieved at what passed seeing the whole country turned to the queen's party the queen then ordered old sir hugh and the earl of arundel to be brought before her son and the barons assembled and told them that she should see that law and justice were executed on them according to their deeds sir hugh replied ah madam God grant us an upright judge and a just sentence, and that if we cannot find it in this world, we may find it in another. The gallant old knight, when he made this reply, was ninety. He was speedily sentenced, and his execution took place on Saint Denis's Day, thirteen twenty-six, in sight of his son and the king, who were still safe in the castle of Bristol. It seems, says Foysart that the king and the younger Sir Hugh, intimidated by this execution, endeavored to escape to the Welsh shore, in a boat which they had behind the castle. But after tossing about some days, and striving in vain against the contrary winds, which drove them repeatedly back within a mile of the castle, from whence they were trying to escape, Sir Hugh Beaumont, observing the efforts of this unfortunate bark, rowed out with a strong force in his barge, to see who was in it. The king's exhausted boatmen were soon overtaken, and the consequence was, that the royal fugitive and his hapless favorite, were brought back to Bristol, and delivered to the queen, as her prisoners. According to other historians, Edward fled to Wales, and took refuge among the monks of Neath, but his retreat was betrayed by Sir Thomas Blunt, the steward of his household. Now, the evil nature of Isabella of France blazed out in full view. Hitherto her beauty, her eloquence, and her complaints, had won all hearts towards her cause. But the touch-tone of prosperity showed her natural character. The Queen and all the army set out for London. Sir Thomas Wager, the Marshal of the Queen's army, caused Sir Hugh Dispenser to be fastened to the poorest and smallest horse he could find, clothed with a tabard such as he was accustomed to wear that is with his arms and the arms of Clare of gloucester in right of his wife emblazoned on his surcoat or dress of state thus was he led in derision in the suite of the queen through all the towns they passed where he was announced by trumpets and cymbals by way of greater mockery till they reached herford where she and her suite were joyfully and respectfully received and where the Feast of All Saints was celebrated by them with great solemnity. The unfortunate Hugh Dispenser would eat no food from the moment he was taken prisoner, and becoming very faint, Isabella had him tried at Hereford, lest he should die before he reached London. Being nearly insensible when brought to trial, his diabolical persecutors had him crowned with nettles, but he gave few signs of life. His miseries were ended by a death, accompanied with too many circumstances of horror and cruelty to be more than alluded to here he was executed at hereford in the stronghold of the power of mortimer some historians say that the queen was present at his execution the earl of arundel and two gentlemen named daniel and michael dean were beheaded previously at hereford to gratify the vindictive feelings of mortimer who cherished an especial animosity against them baldock the chancellor though protected by his priestly vocation as bishop of norwich from the axe and the halter derived little benefit from his clergy since he was consigned to the tender mercies of adam Orleton, through whose contrivance he was attacked by the london mob with such sanguinary fury that he died of the injuries he received on his way to newgate much of the cruel and perfidious spirit which characterized the conduct of philip Lebel, in his ruthless dealings with the Knights Templars, may be traced in the proceedings of his daughter Isabella at this period. She was, however, the popular idol of the English just then, and as long as the national delusion lasted, she could do no wrong. After these executions, the Queen set out for London, accompanied by her son, her doughty champion, Sir John of Hainault, and her paramour Mortimer, her baronial partisans, and her foreign troops, while a motley levy of volunteers who had accumulated on the road, followed in an almost interminable concourse. As they approached the metropolis, great crowds poured forth to welcome them, and the queen was hailed as the deliverer of the country. The citizens presented costly gifts to Isabella, also to some of her followers. We may suppose that Mortimer was not forgotten. Previously to her quitting Bristol, the Queen summoned a Parliament, in the King's name, to meet at Westminster, December 15th, in which Isabella, Queen Consort, and Edward, son of the King, the Guardian of the Realm, and the Lords, might treat together. This writ was tested by the Prince as Guardian, but a new summons was issued for the meeting of Parliament at the same place, on January 7th, to treat with the King himself, if he were present, or else with the queen consort and the king's son, guardian of the realm. In this memorable parliament, the misdemeanors of the absent sovereign were canvassed. His deposition was decreed, and his eldest son was elected to his office, and immediately proclaimed king in Westminster Hall, by the style and title of Edward the Third. When the decision of her own faction was made known to Isabella, she burst into a passion of weeping, and these counterfeit tears so wrought upon the generous unsuspicious nature of her son that he made a solemn vow not to accept the offered crown of england unless it were his royal father's pleasure voluntarily to resign it to him isabella had overacted her part and her party were a little disconcerted at the virtuous resolution of the princely boy as they had never dreamed of making the consent of the king to his own deposition a preliminary to the inauguration of his successor but they found nothing less would satisfy the young edward as to the lawfulness of his title to the throne the unhappy king had already been compelled to resign the great seal to the delegates of his queen and parliament at monmouth castle adam orleton the traitor bishop of hereford was the person employed by the queen to demand it and as the king quiescently resigned it to him he was deputed with 12 other commissioners to require the unfortunate monarch to abdicate his royal dignity by delivering up his crown, scepter, and the rest of the regalia into their hands. The commissioners proceeded on their ungracious errand to Kenilworth Castle, where the king was kept as a state prisoner, but with honorable treatment by his noble captor, Henry of Lancaster. The pitiless traitor Orleton was the spokesman, and vented the insatiable malice of his heart in a series of bitterest insults against his fallen sovereign under the pretence of demonstrating the propriety of depriving him of a dignity of which he had proved himself unworthy edward listened to the mortifying details of the errors of his life and government with floods of tears and when orleton enlarged on the favour shown him by the magnates of his kingdom and choosing his son for his successor instead of conferring the crown on a stranger he meekly acknowledged it to be such and withdrew to prepare himself for the resignation of the outward symbols of sovereignty de la mort the faithful servant of edward the second gives a pathetic account of the scene in the presence-chamber at kenilworth castle where the commissioners in the presence of henry plantagenet earl of leicester the Earl of Lancaster's eldest son, were drawn up, in formal array, by Orleton to renounce their homage to King Edward, and to receive his personal abdication of the royal dignity. After a long pause, the unfortunate prince came forth from an inner apartment, clad in mourning weeds, or as the chronicler expresses it, gowned in black, the late struggle of his soul being sufficiently denoted by the sadness of his features. But on entering the presence of his obdurate subjects, he sank down in a deep swoon, and lay stretched upon the earth as one dead. The Earl of Leicester and the Bishop of Winchester immediately flew to his assistance, and, raising him in their arms, with some tenderness, supported him. After much trouble, they succeeded in restoring their unhappy master to a consciousness of his misery. As piteous and heavy as this sight was, continues the chronicler it failed to excite the compassion of any other of the queen's commissioners scarcely indeed had the king recovered from his indisposition before the relentless orleton regardless of the agony he had inflicted proceeded to a repetition of his cruel insults the king gave way to a fresh paradoxum of weeping and being much pressed for his decision he at length replied that he was aware that for his many sins he was thus punished and therefore he besought those present to have compassion upon him in his adversity adding that much as he grieved for having incurred the hatred of his people he was glad that his eldest son was so gracious in their sight and gave them thanks for choosing him to be their king The ceremony of abdication, in this instance, it seems, consisted chiefly in the king's surrender of the crown, sceptre, orb, and other ensigns of royalty, for the use of his son and successor. Sir William Trussell, the same judge who pronounced sentence of death on the dispensers, and other adherents of the king, and whose appearance among the commissioners of the queen and parliament, had probably caused the king's swoon, pronounced the renunciation of homage. The chief faults of Edward II appear to have been errors of judgment and levity of deportment. He is accused of having made a party on the Thames, in a returned faggot barge, and of buying cabbages of the gardeners on the banks of the river to make his soup, a harmless frivolic, which might have increased the popularity of a greater sovereign. Edward was, however, too much addicted to the pleasures of the table, and is said to have given way to his habits of intemperance. From an old French manuscript, we find that he paid Jack of St. Alban, his painter, for dancing on the table before him, and making him laugh excessively. Another person he rewarded for diverting him, by his droll fashion of tumbling off his horse. The worst charge of all is, that he was wont to play at Chuck Farthing, or tossing up farthings for heads and tails a very unkingly diversion certainly and sufficient to discuss the warlike peers who had been accustomed to rally round the victorious banner of the mighty father of this grown-up baby adversity appears to have had a hallowing influence on the character of edward the second and the following touching lines written by him in latin during his captivity Sufficiently denote that he was learned, and possessed reflective powers and a poetic imagination. On my devoted head, her bitterest showers, all from a wintry cloud, stern fortune pours. View but her favorite, sage and discerning, graced with fair comeliness, famed for his learning. Should she withdraw her smiles, each grace she banishes. Wisdom and wit are flown, and beauty vanishes." As soon as the commissioners returned to London with the regalia, and signified the abdication of the late sovereign to the Queen and the Parliament, the Prince of Wales was publicly proclaimed king on the 20th of January, 1327, and Walter, Archbishop of Canterbury, preached a sermon in Westminster Abbey, preparatory to the coronation, taking for his text, not any verse from scripture, but the words, Vox Popoli, Vox Dei the queen judged it prudent to detain her sworn champion sir john de hainault and as many of his stout flemings as he could induce to remain in her service till after the coronation of the young king who had completed his fifteenth year in the preceding november he received knighthood from the sword of his cousin the earl of lancaster assisted by sir john hainault on this occasion there was at this time says foissart a great number of countesses and noble ladies attendant on the queen Isabella, the queen gave leave to many of her household to return to their country seats, except a few nobles, whom she kept with her as her counsel. She expressly ordered them to come back at Christmas to a great court which she proposed to hold. When Christmas came, she held her court. It was very fully attended by all the nobles and prelates of the realm, as well as by the principal officers of the great cities and towns. The young King Edward, since so fortunate in arms, was crowned with the royal diadem in Westminster on Christmas Day, 1326. The most remarkable feature at this coronation was the hypocritical demeanor of the Queen Mother Isabella, who, though she had been the principal cause of her husband's deposition, affected to weep during the whole of the ceremony. Sir John de Hainault and all his companions, noble or otherwise, were much feasted, and had many rich jewels given them at the coronation. He remained during these grand feasts, to the great satisfaction of the lords and ladies who were there, until twelfth day. Then the king, by the advice of the queen, gave him an annuity of four hundred marks, to be held by him in fee payable to the city of Bruges, and to the Countess of Garennais, and some other ladies who had accompanied the Queen Isabella to England, King Edward the Third gave many rich jewels on their taking leave. With a view of increasing the unpopularity of her unhappy lord, Isabella wrote to the Pope on the last day of February 1326, requesting him to canonize the beheaded Earl of Lancaster, her uncle, whose virtues she greatly extolled. The Parliament, immediately after the coronation, appointed a council of regency for the guardianship of the youthful sovereign and the realm, consisting of twelve bishops and peers. Among these were the king's two uncles, Thomas of Brotherton, Earl Marshall, and Edmund of Woodstock, Earl of Kent, and the archbishops of Canterbury and York, etc., etc., the Earl of Lancaster was appointed the president. The queen made no remonstrance against this arrangement, but having military power in her own hands, she seized the government and made Roger Mortimer, whom she had caused her son to create Earl of March, her prime minister, and Adam Orleton, her principal counselor. This precious trio managed the affairs of the kingdom between them. After this arrangement, Isabella, hitherto the most accomplished of dissimilators, threw off the mask, and, with the sanction of a parliament made up of her partisans, appropriated to herself a dower exceeding two-thirds of the revenues of the kingdom. The Easter following brought an invasion from the Scots, headed by the heroic king Robert Bruce, and the queen invited her champion, Sir John Hainaut, to assist in repulsing this invasion. At Whitsuntide, Sir John and a number of mercenary troops arrived in England, but were very ill-received by the populace, as the following narration will show. The Queen held a great court on Trinity Sunday at the House of the Black Friars, but she and her son were lodged in the city, where each kept their lodging separate, the young king with his knights and the queen with her ladies, whose numbers were very considerable. At this court, the king had 500 knights, and dubbed 15 new ones. The queen gave her entertainment in the dormitory, where at least 60 ladies, whom she had invited to entertain Sir John de Hainault and his suite, sat down to table. There might be seen a numerous nobility, well served with plenty of strange dishes, so disguised that it could not be known what they were. There were also ladies most superbly dressed, who were expecting with impatience the hour of the ball, but they expected in vain. Soon after dinner, the guests were suddenly alarmed by a furious fray, which commenced among the grooms of the Hainault knights and the English archers, who lodged with them in the suburbs. The Hainault knights, their masters, who were at the queen's banquet, hearing the brute of the affray, rushed to their quarters those that could not enter them were exposed to the great danger, for the archers, to the number of three thousand, shot both at masters and grooms. It was supposed that this affray was contrived by the friends of the dispensers, in revenge for their being put to death through the advice of Sir John Hayneau. This fray effectually broke up Isabella's magnificent Sunday ball at Blackfriars. Meantime, the deposed sovereign, Edward II, continued to write from his prison the most passionate letters of entreaty to isabella to be permitted to see her and their son he was encouraged perhaps by the presence which according to walsingham she occasionally sent him of fine apparel linen and other trifling articles accompanied by deceitful messages expressing solicitude for his health and comforts and lamenting that she was not permitted by the parliament to visit him nothing was however further from the heart of isabella than feelings of tenderness or compassion for her hapless lord the moment she learned that her uncle henry of lancaster had relented from his long-cherished animosity against his fallen sovereign and was beginning to treat him with kindness and respect she removed him from kenilworth and gave him into the charge of the brute ruffians sir john maltravers and sir thomas gurney who had hearts to plan and hands to execute any crime for which their agency might be required. Such tools the tempter never needs to do the savagest of deeds. By this pair, the royal victim was conducted under a strong guard, first to Corfe Castle and then to Bristol, where public sympathy operated so far in his favor that a project was formed by the citizens for his deliverance. When this was discovered, the associate traitors. Gurney and Maltravers hurried him to Berkeley Castle, which was destined to be his last resting place. On the road thither, he was treated in the most barbarous manner by his unfeeling guards, who took fiend-like delight in augmenting his misery by depriving him of sleep, compelling him to ride in thin clothing in the chilly April nights, and crowning him with hay in mockery. According to De More. The Queen's mandate for the murder of her royal husband was conveyed in the memorable Latin distich from the subtle pen of Adam Orleton, the master fiend of her cabinet. It is capable, by the alteration of a comma, of being read with two directly opposite meanings. Edwardum Oxidit no lit temere bonum est Edwardum Oxidere no lit temere bonum est Edward to kill fear not, the deed is good. Edward kill not, to fear the deed is good. Maurice de Berkeley, the lord of the castle, on the first arrival of the unhappy Edward, had treated him with so much courtesy and respect, that he was not only denied access to him, but deprived of all power in his own house. End of section 16